here at Vintage. We have, um, we've been here as a church, I don't know, for, in this space, this since February. We've been up in the area, I don't know, two years. And, and I'll say, listen, we, we, really, uh, we really do love being here. We love doing what we're doing. We love people. We, uh, if you're looking for a perfect church, then you can just go ahead and leave because we definitely ain't perfect. Uh, but, man, we, we love what we're doing and we love what God is doing. And I think that's the key. You know, if you're, if you're one of those people looking for a church, and I know I talked to somebody this morning, if you're looking for a church, just make sure that you go somewhere where they love Jesus more than they love you. And they want Jesus more than they want you there. And uh, if you do that, then you're cool. And um, it'll be good. And uh, I would say that we try to aspire to be a church who loves Jesus more than anything else. And so it's good. Um, well, let's jump right in this morning. If you were here last week, you, you know that we uh, talked about um, this, this call to discipleship. If you've ever read your Bible or if you've ever been in church for more than probably a year, You've probably heard someone pull out Matthew 28 and say, hey, this is Jesus' command. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? And we said that's, that's not a call to evangelism. Evangelism is a, is a momentary spoken event. Discipleship is a lifetime investment where evangelism has, happens to be part of it, right? And so that we're called then to, to be disciple makers, right? Just, like, just as Jesus raised up disciples, invested his life into them, and, and they went and did the things that he did and raised up other people who were like them, right, who were disciples of Jesus. He's saying, now listen, therefore, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, I'm going to make a declarative statement, a declarative statement means it is important. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's our job. And so the idea is life investment, investing into people, all this kind of stuff. But we said last week that you can't, listen, you can't lead someone to a place that you've never been. Right? You can't disciple someone to Jesus if you've never really engaged discipleship and become like Jesus. Right? You, you can't ultimately lead someone to a place that you have never been. So I, I did a favor for you last week, and I gave you a test. Remember, I gave you what I called the discipleship litmus test. The discipleship, the discipleship litmus test. Tongue twister there, right? Discipleship litmus test. And basically it was this. We read from Luke chapter 14. And we said, here is the test to see how good of a job that you're doing as a disciple. And it was this. Jesus declared. I say, if you're going to be my disciple, then you must hate your father, hate your mother, hate your brother and your sister, your spouse, and yes, even your own life. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what he said. That's one of those verses you like to scratch out of the Bible sometimes, right? But he's saying, listen. You can, so the, so his, his, the litmus test is this. How good of a job are you doing at hating? It's fantastic. A lot of you are new, like, what's he talking about, right? Now, we said that what Jesus was doing there was using a literary form called exaggeration. Right? He's using exaggeration to make a point because we know that Jesus is not conflicted with himself. We know scriptures, Jesus says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He says, the greatest commandment is this. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Your neighbor is your, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, people around you. And then he goes on to say, and I want you to love yourself. Right? And so, so what do we do with this? Is Jesus conflicted? How do we handle this? And we said, it's a form of, it's a literary form of exaggeration. I told you about my daughter, Anna Catherine. She comes up to me and she says, Daddy, I am starving. 
right? And I have no compassion for her. Why? Because I, I know she's not starving. She's using this form of exaggeration to get a point across, of the, get a point, uh, get the point across to me of intensity. The intensity of the hunger that she is feeling. She knows she's not starving. She's not literally starving. She means to use the word on purpose, but she's making a point of the level of intensity of her hunger. And so Jesus is coming in the same moment, making that same declarative statement, even about discipleship and saying, listen, I'm going to use exaggerated terms here for the purpose. Listen, so if you don't know that Jesus does this. Jesus offends people all the time on purpose. He used this language. He used the word. It literally means hate. He uses it on purpose, right? To exaggerate for us the intensity of what it actually means to be a disciple of Christ. And what he's saying is this. I am calling you to such a deep and high and otherworldly level of preferring me and of choosing me above all things. It's almost as if you hate everyone else. Do you understand that exaggerated term? I want you to lose your religion for a moment. You know what I mean in that. Say, oh my gosh, what's he saying? He's being heretical. No, I'm simply telling you what the Bible says, right? This idea of understanding that Jesus is saying this is the level. There's a huge difference between your affection and your love and your service for me as my disciple. And everything else is a very, very distant second, even the ones you love most, and primarily your love for self. So, I gave you homework last week, and your homework was simple. I want you to ask yourself every day, do you hate everything more than Jesus? That is your homework. Every day you sit there and ask. You sit with Jesus. You have a, a Holy Spirit moment, just the two of y'all, or whatever, four of y'all, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Remember how that works in the Spirit? I don't really know, right? Sit down and have this dialogue back and forth with the Trinity, right? Having this moment saying and asking yourself and asking God, do I hate everything more than you, Jesus? Embrace the exaggerated terms, right? Embrace the offense of the language and understand you have to wrestle with this. God, do I love you on a higher level in such a powerfully more powerful way than everything else in my life? Do you? You have to ask yourself this every day. So that was your homework. The second, you have to ask yourself, your second part of the homework is this. Ask yourself, have I picked up my cross today? Have I died to self? Have I chosen Jesus over my own desires, my own longings, my own passions? Have I chosen to die to self today and choose Jesus? This, my friends, is a discipleship litmus test for you. And you too can take it and hopefully you will pass, right? You can go, if you want to listen to the whole message and see how heretical I am, you can. It's on the podcast. You can do that at vintage242.com. But anyway, so you had this whole thing going on. Jesus is calling us to this place of discipleship and saying, I am looking for those who can, listen, I'm looking for those who can lead others to me because you're truly a disciple of mine. So, good news. Now, this morning what I want to do is this. I want to help you, and I want to encourage you in the moment. Okay? I, want to, I want to pull a story from the Old Testament. I think it's a, a great picture of discipleship happening in the, in the Old Testament, of, of God investing into the life of a man for the purpose of, of, of helping him grow into the person that God has created him to be. Basically, discipleship. Okay? And this person is the father of Judaism, ultimately the father of Christianity. We call him Abraham today, right? Abraham is the father. 
And we're going to look at the story, and it's really probably the greatest story of faith in all of the Old Testament. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac, and God's call to Abraham to sacrifice and to kill his own son, whom he loves with everything in him. All right? Sounds like good news, doesn't it? Killing people. All right. Here we go. So uh, Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read the whole, this verse 1 through 18, all the way through. So I would say this. Everybody just press pause real quick, because all of you kind of checking out, you're saying to yourself, oh, I already know the story. I heard the story like it's in kindergarten. All right? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Everybody listen to me. I want you to pretend that you don't believe in Jesus and that you've never been in church your entire life. That's hard for some of you because, I mean, you were drinking bottles at church, right? You took porta potties to church with you or something like that, right? You, I mean, you, all of you, most, a lot of us grew up in church. We had this story down pat, but I want you to do your best to, every time I read, if that means even just kind of putting your Bible down for the moment and just listening as I read it, right? Or whatever it means, I want you to listen to this story as if you've never heard it before. Fresh ears hearing the story. And I want it, listen, I want it to offend you because it should. Starting in verse 1. Sometime later, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son. Do you have your child in mind here? Take your child, your only child, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So early the next morning, Abraham, full of joy and excitement, got up and saddled his donkey. He took him with two of his servants and his son Isaac. He took with him his son, servants and son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he, carried, he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the land for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the land for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, and said, I swear by myself, because there's no one higher, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. 
your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. All right. So, you've read it through New Lens. Hopefully you saw a lot of the parallels there between Jesus and the father and Abraham and his son Isaac. Uh, Maybe you see some of the stories in there of Isaac having to carry the wood himself, as in Jesus having to carry the cross of wood himself. There's lots of parallels here about Isaac, your only son, Jesus, God's only son. There's lots of parallels you can read in the story. We're not going to get into many of those this morning, but I hope you begin to see some of those. It's just powerful to see this this parallel here between God and his son Jesus and uh, father and son Jesus and then Abraham and his son Isaac. So the first thing I want to do, I want to jump in. We're talking here about... This, uh, this discipleship of Abraham, just Abraham being designed and turned into the man that God wants him to be. And the first thing I want us to see is this. Discipleship requires testing. Okay? Discipleship requires testing. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Important fact to know, this is the only time in Scripture we know of God actually testing a human being. Right? So only, only time in all of the, all of scripture where God tests someone. I don't, it's a, it's a unique situation, a unique thing going on here. But I think what we get at is that in our lives we recognize that testing happens all the time. Now, the point that I want to get at first, and I want to lay this foundation about Abraham, is that Abraham is a human being just like every single one of you, right? Abraham, like you, has a desire to do the right thing. He has a desire to, to ultimately do what God wants him to do. He has this great longing, this great desire. But he, and he has these moments of great victory of doing the right thing in his life. You think about a couple of stories in his life. Number one, God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to leave the place where you are. I want you to leave your hometown of Ur, and I want you to leave to go to a place Oh, I'll tell you about later, not right now. And so it says Abraham packs up all of his stuff and takes off in faith, and it pleased God, right? We see another one, God comes to him and comes to, his, to he and his wife, and Sarah says, hey, listen, I know you're menopausal and past it, Sarah. Because she's old as the hills, right? She's like, I mean, I, earlier I, I called out Gary Gibbons. He was a... He was like the oldest person in the room at the time. I'm not going to pull up the oldest person in this room, right? But I pulled Gary Givens out and said, Hey, imagine if Gary Givens' great-grandmother was still living, and God came and said, Hey, you're going to have a son. You go, you're an idiot, right? That's what you would say. If you're, you wouldn't say because you're too holy to say that. But if you were thinking practically, that's what you would think. There's no way this could happen. This would not just be a minor miracle. This would be a major, major miracle, right? And this is Sarah. And Abraham, it says that Abraham believed God. Believe it. I trust him. This is great, right? And God celebrated. This is fantastic. But then we go on in Abraham's life and we see he's trekking on, going, leaving Ur, and all of a sudden he comes upon the city. Remember what he does? He fears for he and his family's life. So he says, I got an idea. I don't know why he does this, right? But he decides the best thing to do is to tell everybody that Sarah's not actually his wife, but is his sister. So he lies about this, and, and, and he's sitting there in this moment, he's fearing this group where God has said, don't fear anything, I'll give you this land. And so what we find, this happens more than one time, we find God is not pleased with Abraham because he fears and he lies. There's no need for this, right? Go on, and what happens? So Abraham's in the moment, and he's believing God that the son's going to come, and what happens? Well, everybody over here begins to tell him, hey, Listen, it's taking a long time. I've got a better plan for you. Why don't you go have sex with another woman? Seems like a great plan, right? And you can have a son through her. 
Great idea. Abraham says, hey, this is a good idea. And he goes and does the thing. What happens? Ishmael is born. I'm just reading the Bible to you, right? This happened. So he's sitting here in the moment. Let me tell you what happened. That did not please God. That did not please God. So what I find in Abraham then is this great story of someone who's just like me and he's just like you. Someone who has this great desire in his pursuit of God to to, to be like Jesus, to become Christ-like. And in my desiring of doing that, I have my moments where I succeed, and then I have my moments of not succeeding. Just like every one of you. See, what I want you to see is that Abraham, in this life he's living, is just like every single other human being who lives. And that should fill us with hope. Because Abraham comes into this moment and God comes in and he basically says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come along now and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you. I'm going to test you. See, testing has the purpose. Testing has the purpose of revealing the true nature of something and causing it to grow. James 1.3 says, you know the testing of your faith, it develops perseverance. And, it, and what happens, and when perseverance takes root, then you become mature in Christ. Basically what James says, listen, you can't mature and grow into Christ's likeness in your life unless there's some form of testing that happens in your life. There will be. Listen, I want to promise you this morning. I want to promise you something this morning. Hardship and difficulty happens in life. And it will happen in life. And James tells us it's a good thing. Testing of our faith produces perseverance. This is what's happening, because when you're tested in something, what happens? Your character is revealed, isn't it? Listen, it's really easy to be a really super strong, Bible-believing, you know, Christian every day of your life until you get squeezed, and then what happens? Stuff comes out that's not really Christ-like, is it? You know what I'm talking about. All you holy rollers out there, you're coming to church and you're praying out loud, real loud, and you're like worshiping and jumping, and you go home and screaming at your kids. Anger's coming out inside of you. Don't be too holy, be real. Crap comes out, doesn't it? And so you're here in the moment, all of a sudden he's getting squeezed in the moment. Testing is happening. The true character, the true nature of who he is is being squeezed out for the purpose of maturing his faith, right? This hardship and difficulty is coming. For Abraham, Abraham, the issue at hand is the exact issue we're talking about last week. Abraham, I know that you love your son. I know the son is the, your son is the apple of your eye. Everything revolves around here. Sarah's pretty great, I know, in your life, but Isaac is everything. And I'm putting you up to this. I'm going to test you. I want to see, I want to test you. I want to see something very clearly. I want to see that when you get squeezed in the moment, is your commitment to me going to be the thing that sustains you, the foundation that you stand on? Is it going to be what you choose or not? What is your greatest love and commitment, Abraham? So, testing comes in our life. Testing will occur in our life. Second thing we see, discipleship is a process. Discipleship, it is a process. Jim Elliott, he was a missionary in Ecuador, and he was martyred by the, those he was ministering to. He said this, one, listen, one does not surrender a life in an instant. 
that which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. I'll read that again. Just hear this nature of discipleship becoming Christ-like being a process over time. One does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. You see, the story of Abraham and Isaac is the culmination of his life. Chapter 22, basically, it's the, it's the last real story about Abraham. We haven't seen other pieces, but this is the real last, this is the last real story that focuses fully on Abraham. This is the culmination of the life of Abraham. We, he had these moments of victory. He had his moments of defeat in the process of his life and this process of being discipled to, to become the man that God wanted him to be. He's in the process. He's, he's in his life every day having to surrender things over and over and over again, and God brings him into the greatest test that his faith is ever known. It's part of the process. See, listen, listen, this should be encouraging to you. Because because God is, listen, this is really important. This may be like eye-opening for somebody. God is not interested in you reaching the end. He's interested in you living out every day. You think he's focused on the end, but he's really focused on you just surrendering today. You're at step A. He realizes you can't get to step Z in one day. He knows it takes step B and C and D and all the way through. He's interested in the process of you living your life every day, surrendering every day, recognizing I'm going to mess it up over here. I'm going to succeed over here. And Abraham's in this place and he has this moment. He's in the process. And even, this is important, even the last process, there's even a process in in this moment of, of, of obedience. What does it say? It says that Abraham heard from the Lord. He went to sleep that night. Can you imagine sleeping on that news? How much you want to bet he didn't sleep very well that night? Listen, Abraham had feelings and emotions just like you people. He didn't want to do this. He hated this moment. And so he's in the process. And he's, he wakes up the next morning and he gets his servant, he gets his donkey. He gets Isaac, gets all the stuff they need. And he begins this hellish journey. This process. You know, I, I said in the 9 o'clock service, I wonder if Abraham made sure he left his donkey with his servants because he was afraid he might try to just kill it as a sacrifice. Who knows? I'm just reading the lines. That's just me. That's a meism right there, right? But it's just interesting. He's in this process. Every, listen, every step is difficult in the process. I mean, can you imagine the moment after three days' journey, he turns the corner, and there's the stupid mountain, the place he knows God's called him to go, and all of a sudden, everything becomes even more real than it was before. And he's looking at the mountain. He just exhales. Nobody knows what's going on. They're enjoying the journey. Hey, I'm hanging out with Dad. Isaac's having a great time, right? But he looks at the mountain, and he's processing the mountain. He recognizes what God has called him to, which leads to the third thing. Discipleship requires follow-through. Discipleship requires follow-through. 
Hey, don't you understand what Isaac's going through? You know, each of us, this is really the story of us. We each have our own mountain, don't we? We each have our own places that God is calling us to surrender or to sacrifice or to give ourselves to. When we see the mountain in our minds, it represents death. It represents something that's overwhelming to us. We don't like the mountain. We don't like what God has called us to. We don't like this call to obedience. We don't like this call of dying to self and putting God first, right? It's the story of us. We have our own mountains in our life. And Abraham has his mountain, and he recognizes, I have to follow through in this. You see, discipleship is more about follow-through rather than an immediate response of like, yeah, hey, right? It's all about reaching the end. The father, you look at Abraham, what does he do? Abraham takes all of his stuff, and then he gets to this, this hellish mountain, and he grabs all of his stuff, and he grabs Isaac, and he goes and says, we're going up the mountain. And he begins to follow through, and we see, and what does he do? He gets, to the, he gets up to the top, he builds the altar, he places the wood down, he places his son Isaac, Isaac on it. He ties his son down so he won't run off. I could just picture Isaac crying out, God, Daddy, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And he's sitting here in the moment, and Abraham is sure, he's just weeping in the moment, tears streaming down his face, saying, I have to be obedient to God. Are you getting a picture now of Luke chapter 14 of hating father, mother, brother, sister, and child? And he stands there in the moment and he picks up the knife. And he lifts it and begins to, he begins to come down and the angel of the Lord, speaking on behalf of God, says, Abraham, Abraham, whoa, 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 stop. Stop. See, Abraham, was, he followed through. You see, in our lives, the things that God's calling us to in our mountain, when we climb our mountain, God is more interested in our in our follow-through. See, discipleship really is all about follow-through. I remember there's a, terribly paraphrasing a story here of Jesus, but there's a story where Jesus comes and he talks to these two guys. He says, there's two guys, and, and this guy comes to this, these two guys and says, hey, listen, I want you to do this job for me. And one of them goes, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do it, right? All excited, all zealous, all passionate. I'm going to totally do this. I'm going to embrace this and engage it. I'm going to do it. And then he falls off as a follow-through. The other guy goes, I don't want to do that. Kind of walks off and goes, eh, I have a change of heart, and then follows through. And Jesus says, hey, which one do you think that the Father is more pleased with? He says, well, the one who followed through. He says, so it is with you. I don't want, God's not interested in people who get all zealous and passionate for God, and they get all the fireworks, like, this is so much fun, I love you, Jesus! And then the next day does not follow through. See, that's not discipleship. That's falling away, right? We have to have this understanding of follow through, that what God calls us to. Yes, we have moments of failing, but he says, I'm going to continue to come back. And you have to be a people who follow through on this sacrificing, going to the mountain and surrendering, sacrificing of laying these things down at my feet, choosing me, preferring me, loving me more than everything else in the world. This is what he's looking for, those who will follow through. Which then leads to number four, which is obedience results in blessing. Obedience results in blessing. We all like this verse right here. This is point, obedience. The obedience of Abraham led to blessing. Let's just kind of, it led to blessing. Look, look at this here. It says in verse 12, it says, Do not lay hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to harm him, do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your, from me your, your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram, right? God's providing the sacrifice. He went over, took the ram, sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of his son. Beautiful. Stop right there. So he, he provides, right? God comes and does this, pours out blessing. Then 
Then the angel comes along and says on behalf of God, listen, I'm going to swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. You see, when we come as the disciples of Christ and we lay all this stuff down at the feet of Jesus and we choose him, which is basically this. It's Listen, this is important. It's basically our act of obedience. Jesus says, how do you know that? How do I know that you love me by obeying my commands? That's just in the Bible. Okay. how do you know what love is? Will you obey me? And so when when Abraham comes here and he is obedient to God, it's his expression of love to the father. And the blessing in return is simply God loving him back. See, my great tension with this verse is a lot of people twist this and they think it to mean, hey, if you're simply, a, they, they go into church and they say, if I'm obedient to God, if I give God this, then he's going to give me something back in return, right? It's called spiritual witchcraft. We put our coin into the slot, pull it down and ask God for money back in return, right? Spiritual witchcraft. If I can just come and be obedient, then God will give me what I want. No, what God wants to do is he wants to love you in return the way that he wants to love you. With no expectations from you. All you have to do is love God. Listen, if I sit there and say, hey, Randall, I'm going to scratch your back tonight so you can scratch my back because I want you to serve me. Right. Then there's no real love in that. I'm doing something so I can get something in return. And churches are filled with people like this every day. They want to do something for God so that he'll do something back in return. And when he does it, what do they do? They get frustrated. What I want to say to you is this. When we talk about obedience results in blessing, what I want to say to you is this. Your obedience is your form of love to God. You love with no strings attached. And you say, Jesus, I'm going to be obedient to you, and I'm going to love you because I simply want to. And when that happens, God says, oh my gosh, I I first loved you, now you love me, and I'm going to love you back. And he pours himself out upon us in love upon us in whatever way he chooses to. He pours out money, great. He pours out relationships, great. If he just pours out warm fuzzies and tinglies, that's great too. He can do whatever he wants. I'm not going to put boundaries on how he loves me back. And expectations even of how he's supposed to do it. He pours out blessing. Because he wants to. So obedience, it results in blessing. Obedience is our act of love to God and then him loving back. Number five, discipleship changes our perspective. Discipleship changes our perspective. I want you to get the picture here again. I'm painting pictures this morning for you. Abraham's on the stupid mountain that he hates with everything in him. It's a hellish mountain. It represents death for him. His entire journey to it was was a labor, a painful, agonist labor of love. Walking up, getting to it, and then it gets really physically hard to climb the dumb mountain. It's hard to get to the top of a mountain, right? He's an old man, too. He's carrying stuff, even, right? It is hard. It is difficult. He hates, he loathes, he despises the mountain itself. He's not enjoying the moment at all. Everything about the mountain to him, everything about the sacrifice and the servanthood in this, he doesn't like it. And then all of a sudden, God gives the sacrifice, and then God blesses him, and all of a sudden, there's this awakening moment. And all of a sudden, he realizes that the mountain was on a mountain of death. 
This was a mountain of life. It was me being squeezed and being obedient to God. And when I did that, he poured himself out to me and he revealed to me who I am as a faithful servant. He told me how much he loves me. And then on top of that, on top of that, I recognize he is a God who in the midst of hell is a provider. And so what does he do to the mountain? He, he doesn't just wave goodbye to it. He names it. He says, Mariah, Mariah, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. That's what this mountain is called. God is the provider, Jehovah Jireh. He looks at the stupid mountain and realizes, this is the greatest gift of God I've ever known in my entire life. I hated this mountain. I loathed it. Now, listen, it has become the monument that when life gets hellish again, this is the place I always look. It becomes the monument that I turn to in every situation of life to remember this is who God is and this is who I'm supposed to be. He is faithful. He is the provider. And I am his servant who is here. And when I'm obedient to him, he pours himself out upon me and life is birthed. You hate your mountains and they are God's gift to you. Don't you hate that? If you're honest. Because our mountains in our life, we all have our mountains, right? We see them in distance. God's calling us to a place of sacrifice, a place of surrendering, a place of servanthood. We see the mountain. We get to the mountain. The moment has arrived. We're like, oh my gosh, this is miserable. God, I hate this. I hate this. Everything about it, right? But we follow through. And what happens? In that moment, life is produced. God provides. He meets us. He pours himself out. See, this is discipleship. Discipleship, my friends, is a process. It's the journey of life that we are on. And in that process, in that journey along the way, testing will occur, right? James says, hey, the testing of your faith is a good thing. It produces perseverance. And perseverance must take its root in your life so that you can be mature in Christ. What is maturity? Christ-likeness. Basically, it says maturity. It says, says perseverance must take root so that you can be a disciple of Christ. That's basically what it says. And as we follow through in that moment, all of a sudden, we have, that, we have that moment. Listen, we have that moment as a monument to the goodness of God that we used to loathe and now we recognize. We would say, we would say to God, now God just want to say, I love the mountain, but I never want to go there again. Right? If we say that. God, I have people, have people said this, I wish I never had to go through that. But now that I have, I'm so glad that I have it because it's changed me forever. This is the process of discipleship. And as we live our lives as ones who call, him, call ourselves followers of Jesus, then you will be just like Abraham. And you're going to go through testing and moments of hell. God is not about you being happy. God is about you being whole and Christ-like. And if it means going through hell, then you keep on going through it. And you find him on the other side and recognize this 
is a benchmark for me. This is a difficult moment. This is the place where I raise my Ebenezer, if you understand that language. This monument to God. The Jews did it all the time. They went to the Red Sea. It was a hellish moment. What did they do? They raised their Ebenezer, their monument to God. They came, all of a sudden, all the stuff started happening in their life. What did they do? They raised Ebenezer. They had to cross the Jordan River, and what happened? They, God parted it right there in the moment. All of a sudden, they raised their Ebenezer. There are rocks. There's a monument. There's a reminder of who God is. Our mountains in life are those monuments we look back on of who God is. Let's pray. Father, you were good. And Father, we love you. And Father, we just want to make it real clear right here and now, if we're really honest with you, we, don't, we, we, we hate this. We hate these mountains. We hate hardships. We, we don't like going through them. And Jesus, I'm just really grateful to know that you went through it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you basically let Father know, too, you didn't like it. That you wish you didn't have to go through it. So that fills me with great comfort. And Father, I just want to come and say right now, I am Abraham. I am a broken human being who fails all the time and succeeds every now and then. And God, I praise you for your grace in that. I praise you for the process, that you don't have an expectation of perfection today. You have an expectation of making a choice of you today and moving towards you every day. And I praise you, Father God, ultimately. I praise you and thank you for our mountains. God, I praise you for those places of surrender and sacrifice where we become like Jesus. I praise you that you are not content with us just staying where we are, but you want to disciple us into Christ's likeness. And Father, this morning I'm simply asking that you would pour yourself out in such a way that, God, we would know you, that we would walk with you and be changed into your image. Father, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.